Good morning, good evening, and good afternoon, everyone. Thank you very much for joining us on yet another episode. Today, this is episode number 20, and our topic is really interesting for me, and I'm sure it will be interesting for you. Today, we're going to be talking about engineering compensation with my special guest, Tambi Jaluka. Uh, he is from Jordan. I'm going to introduce my guest in a little bit. But before that, I want to remind you that uh, you can find these episodes on both YouTube and all of the major podcasting platforms. Obviously, the links for the different things are going to be found below. Uh, I have a link tree set up where you can literally find the links for everything, all the social platforms and all of my accounts. So please make sure you check it out. And also, when this episode airs, I would have probably launched my Patreon page. Um, and I would love it if you go check it out and see if any of the subscriptions fits your needs and see whether you are interested in any of the you know tiers and the rewards. I'm sure you will find something. Um, this will help me make this channel much more sustainable down the line and it will help me produce much more content uh, than I would do uh, today. I obviously want to keep all of this content free for everyone as much as I can. So I would have to rely on your contributions and your generosity uh, to keep this channel going and to keep the content flowing. So today I have a very special guest. Um, Tambi has uh, majored in mathematics before switching to computer science. He started his career as a software engineer in the early 2000s. So obviously he's been in the field for quite a while now. Uh, and then he, uh, he obviously seems to be an entrepreneur at heart. He started his own uh, software development company. And then from there, he iterated over multiple startups himself before he exited one of them um, in 2002. And at the moment, he is an investor in startups, uh, SaaS companies, and tech companies in general. Uh, Tambi, I'm very happy to have you with me today. Thank you very much for taking the time. Uh, is, there you anything you would like, is there anything you would like to add to your uh, background? Did I miss anything? No, um, the only thing that uh, I miss coding, uh, which uh, is something <laughs> that's, I think, very dear to your heart. Uh, yeah, I that's miss okay. the day that it's good. Once you start, you never, you can never uh, forget it. And it's, you always, there's always an itch, you know, once you get into the coding part, you just, you never let it go. Exactly. Um, do you do you actually still code today? Do you still write code? Um, well, uh, honestly, uh, not as much as uh, I used to. Um, sometimes I do come up with, uh, you know, there are some things that might need a solution, some translation, like we need uh, to do some kind of ETL. We have information that we need to just translate. I might write a script uh, to do that, but not really and uh, not really on a day-to-day -day basis and it's it really needs to be uh, pushed by myself because as you know Yanni, when you uh, grow into different areas where you start having different responsibilities such as uh, managing a vc fund finding startups helping those startups you start not having enough time to uh, to code obviously yeah yeah i i'm, I'm not sure like i always think about it this way so when i'm when i'm doing full-time uh, work in coding i always uh, romanticize the idea that i'm gonna make coding a hobby at some day just you know bring it back to become a hobby and then when i spend time not writing code in pr to production and doing it full-time i miss it and then i will <laughs> i always try to pivot back to to roles uh, where that require me to write code um, on a daily basis so i really have no idea what is the best way to do this uh, we're still discovering i guess same here uh, but but it is becoming more of a it's becoming more of a hobby and that's a nice thing because it allows you to so at some point uh, after i started uh, investing i went to uh, learn elixir which i wouldn't have done in my job because functional language doesn't fit like uh, i couldn't use it on an actual uh, live production uh, now I'm learning Dino, uh, which is Node.js, uh, let's say 2.0. So yeah, it, it's starting to become more of a hobby. But thinking in systems and thinking how to create large-scale systems is something that I still am uh, active in due to supporting our startups, if that makes sense. It's, it's actually quite interesting that you have an investor who also has a technical background and supports the startups. So, so just like, let's break it down a little bit for our audience who don't know, um, what, is a, what is a VC fund? What is an investor in a VC fund? Like, what is your role? What do you do with, with that money that you have? 
So uh, a VC, you know, a venture capital fund is uh, an investment vehicle that uh, um, multiple uh, limited partners who whom are people who want somewhere to put their money and uh, they want that, their money to grow year over year. So they would pool their money into a vehicle called a venture fund, uh, so venture capital fund. And we, we as the general partners, so myself and my partners, we manage that capital. We find good companies for them to uh, deploy that capital in. And then we take care of those uh, portfolio companies. We call that a portfolio, just like a portfolio of assets, any portfolio of assets. And uh, uh, looking for the day that one day, one of those investments or maybe more, uh, hopefully, would actually uh, get sold, uh, bring us 10 to 100x, uh, hopefully, uh, returns. And then we would distribute that capital back to the limited partners. Uh, Got it. Yeah. So within five to seven years, I would say that's five the... to seven years. So uh, a big misconception I had at least a few years ago when I started, you know, under, learning a little bit more about venture capital capital funds and whatnot, is that I thought the the partners in the fund, or at least the the managers of the fund, they brought their own money into it. But then later on, I understood that it's not necessarily the case. There are limited partners who did the money who they who own the money, but then there are managers of that fund. Is this yep. the, is this true in your case? Exactly. So by the way, the first fund was mostly our money, uh, but it was very small. So once you want to uh, grow that fund, you can, depends how wealthy you are, of course, uh, which uh, we're not there yet. But Peter Thiel is, for example, he owns a big part of his uh, fund. But because he made a lot of exits with eBay and, uh, uh, sorry, PayPal and uh, other companies. But uh, most of the time, uh, uh, the part, the GP, uh, the managers, they put in around uh, two to five percent of the total fund. I would say that would be the GP contribution part. Okay. So we do have skin in the game, but it's 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 a minute uh, part of the bigger fund. Usually, uh, limited partners are uh, endowments, uh, social security, large uh, uh, government entities that have that are sitting on the large pools of capital that can put in uh, tens of millions into a fund. And usually the GP, which is us, uh, has uh, you know, doesn't have the ability to put more than uh, 2%. How do, you, how do you select where you allocate the money? Uh, depends on the stage that you work in. But it's uh, every company has a different thesis. Um, some people like to get in early. Some people like to get in later. Depends on your risk tolerance. Uh, depends how much are you close to innovation rather than uh, good financial, uh, uh, I would say, uh, if you look at uh, good historicals, then you might start looking at uh, a de-risk company. But if you want to go be close to innovation, close to people who are creating something that wasn't there usually, you need to go earlier and earlier. Uh, so uh, how do we do that? Again, every, every VC will have a different uh, way. We look at uh, the team and how big are they thinking? Yani, uh, are they thinking of something global? Yani, us in specific, we invest in the MENA region, but we invest in companies that have a global outlook. So they're not building something for the local market. Uh, at least it should be regional or a global uh, product. Got it. And um, so what does your due diligence look like? Like, do you delve into the details of the technicalities? Do you try to understand uh, how the product is being built? Uh, do you vet the founders? Do, like, is there a process uh, or it's more of you meet the founders, you're comfortable with them, you allocate money and you're done? Um, no, there. Uh, sadly, uh, I would love uh, for it to be that simple, but we do have to dig deeper because... Uh, it's not always, by the way, trying to catch someone as if they're lying, but it's also trying to understand because sometimes people um, over, uh, any, uh, you know, exaggerate uh, their, uh, everyone, I think, falls into that where they exaggerate what they're doing. They exaggerate that they actually have found a problem that is important. Sometimes they might not be aware. Uh, some people's uh, some people go for one year trying to solve a problem, and then they found out, find out that there are none, no one is actually looking for a solution for that problem. 
So we do the due diligence. We we look under a little bit under the hood. We need to understand uh, like how are they solving it? How much are they building versus validating? Are they building too much, or are they building too little? By the way, sometimes if if everything's outsourced, for example, we wouldn't invest in a company that outsources uh, their technology. That's our preference, by the way. Other VCs might uh, happily invest in it, but usually us and I'm going to say other uh, investors, Y Combinator might be one of them, where you need to have a technical part, uh, a technical partner uh, in uh, on the cap table in the team. Uh, so we do dive into that area. So uh, I might ask for someone to open up uh, uh, the repo, show me, uh, show the code, but out of understanding. It's not about uh, finding errors because I don't know his job, Yani or her job, they know it better than, I'm not going to judge them. But just having them show everything uh, actually clears them out. Sometimes people are like, okay, I'll contact my dev team, which is in an Eastern European country, and they will show you the code. That's a red, a red uh, flag. Yeah. All right. This is a great segue for us to talk about why are software engineers so much in demand today? And I think you already sort of brush, brushed upon the answer right now, but I would love to hear your opinion. Regardless of what everyone wants to believe that software development is a commodity and you can easily find people to build any product you want, having uh, that capability to build uh, the solution that you think fits that problem is so so much important and a lot of companies fail because uh, they don't own the technology because uh, they can't iterate fast because every iteration cycle takes a few months and if they think that maybe we need to adjust a little bit to tap into that market that's a change request that's uh, a new contract between them and the service provider so these things are the things that uh, at least from what i saw uh, kill startups or at least let them stagnate teams that have the ability to one day they see something like, okay, we want to try this thing out. They go uh, drink coffee, sit uh, until 6 a.m. in the morning, release it, and then uh, hopefully it works. Those teams are the ones that usually uh, end up uh, winning. Statistically, I'm looking at it. I didn't see all the companies in the world, but I've heard a lot, read a lot, seen stories of people who did it. And the ones that anecdotes that I have from my life, uh, having either invested or been uh, on a parallel track, seeing my friends uh, operate in startups, um, usually those ones don't become uh, unicorns fast, I would say at least. They might become unicorns over 20, 30 years, but I think that's a traditional company. 100%. 100%. I, I fully agree with your with this perspective. I've been involved in building a few startups. And the problem is early on in my career, when I was like entering the field, I think it hurts. Um, I mean, it's a def difficult perspective to acquire when you as a junior developer come into a startup and try to understand this fast iteration, fast, you know, feedback loop cycle where one day you're building something, the next day someone comes in and says, yeah, we need to flip everything and then try something else entirely. As someone who's trying to get into the field, this is very difficult to comprehend. Like this, why, why are they bothering with, with this? Why can't they make up their minds? It's not really about making up your, your mind. It's, it's about testing a variety of experiments and seeing what actually sticks. And it takes years for this mindset to settle in a developer's you know, mind and, and for us to mature and, and really understand how the business, what the business aspect is. And I think a big part of this episode is helping my audience, developers, try to understand a little bit this mindset, the founder's mindset, you know, to try to shape also a little bit their understanding and make better decisions. Like maybe you say, okay, great. This fast iteration cycle is not good for me. Great. Go join a more established company. They will probably iterate at a much slower pace and they will not have the same, uh, you know, requirements in terms of um, uh, speed and whatnot. Um, great. From your experience, uh, Tanbi, what are startups looking for in terms of talent? They might say they're looking for hackers. Um, of course, hackers, not in the sense of actually, uh, you know, uh, doing ill to other people, but hackers as in uh, people who move fast, break things, I'm going to say. Um, in a sense, uh, they are looking for that. But at the same time, a lot of people are looking for solid people that can 
build fast yet build on solid grounds, uh, which even Facebook moved into that direction. And even slower startups are uh, becoming uh, more aware of uh, recruiting people that are have enough experience to be able to create something uh, that at least uh, reaches a place where it solves the problem. Uh, because a lot of the time, it's not about getting any solution out there. A lot of startups put anything out there, but it doesn't work. It doesn't even validate what uh, needs to be validated because there's a lot of glitches. So for example, imagine that you put a product out there very fast. Customers are always complaining about uh, login errors, things that are irrelevant to the main value that you're trying to validate. You're trying to validate would people use uh, something, uh, that a tool. If they're having bugs and those bugs are not within the critical path, uh, it doesn't even allow people to go through the critical path once, then it's a you didn't really gain anything from working fast. So they are looking for people that are professional yet young, people that can work a lot, but at the same time, not output uh, crappy code. So it, it's 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 not clear, by the way, right? Yeah, it's contradicting. Yeah, I want someone senior, but with the spirit of an uh, 18 year old. Exactly, 18 year old. Yeah. So it's really hard. But there are people that uh, actually can achieve that because it's, it's the professional attitude and it's the way you were, I'm going to say brought up, but should maybe brought up as uh, the environment that you worked in. It doesn't need to be your parents. Yeah. Yeah. Most probably yeah, a you lot. were guided early on in your career influences a lot. Uh... Maybe influenced. Exactly, Basim. Yeah. So if, if you. Uh, if you worked a few years in a good company, I think that gives you uh, a really well uh, base so you can actually go and work at a startup uh, and achieve a lot. Because usually right out of college, depending on which college and depends how many projects did you do in the college. Because, for example, the Collison brothers, I know they started when they were 19 and 21, but they, they started creating uh, products when they were in high school, when they were 14, 15. So they already did a few startups before uh, doing uh, Stripe. So uh, I, I would look at young and professional. Uh, yeah, and the environment has changed a lot. Like I remember back in my days when I was 15, 16, I also had entrep an entrepreneurial spirit. I tried to freelance a little bit online back in the day of when we had dial up and it was very difficult to even get online and all of that stuff. And it was crazy, like, you know, living in a, in a, in a country like Lebanon and making whatever hun few hundred bucks when I was 15 or 16. But this gave me a whole different perspective about how, what, how, how I can add value to people very quickly with very finite and limited resources. And I think these these lessons are invaluable and they contribute a lot to your success at, at a very early stage. And I think these are the small nuances that are sort of missing from university graduates nowadays, not because, you know, of, of flaws in them, but because just they were not exposed to these things. They never had to, you know, face these problems and try to solve them in, in a different way. And, um, and yeah, you're right. Startups are looking for senior people and sometimes even at the cost of junior engineers because that's all, the only thing they can afford. Um, which brings us to talk about the topic of the day, which is engineering compensation. So obviously people can get paid in so many different things. And I like to think of our careers as, you know, we're trading value. So we're giving our companies value, but we're getting another form of value in return. And that can take many forms beside a liquid cash salary, right? Um, so let's talk about the different ways an, an engineer can earn money. And we, let's start with startups. Like what are the options? How can startups pay uh, or, or add value to their engineers? Yeah. So usually startups, you know, everyone knows in the beginning, at least before they get uh, huge rounds and maybe especially this year going forward, they don't have a lot of cash uh, uh, lying around. So they always need to be uh, not stingy, but uh, the word is you know, careful with their spending. So they would probably not pay as much as uh, a corporate or an established company. If you're going to go work in Salesforce, you're going to get a different compensation than working in a smaller startup that started from Jordan or Egypt. There will be a difference, but... Um, 
depending on your level and caliber, uh, you also deserve to be compensated. You, you know, just because the company is smaller doesn't mean that uh, your uh, earning capability should drop as well. So their paying capability is less, understandably why. They can't actually afford to pay your previous uh, salary in a FANG or even a regional large company. So something needs to give. And uh, usually uh, that's the part where uh, people uh, don't really understand, uh, both founders and, uh, and I'm going to say uh, people running the business, because uh, founders might be uh, of different backgrounds, but people running the business and early joiners don't really see eye to eye as much. Uh, I think there's a mismatch there because a lot of the time, People who come from technical background. I'm, uh, by the way, I'm uh, I'm looking at my history. By the way, um, so how the way I was brought up. I didn't take any accounting lessons at school, which was a big mistake. I don't even know. I didn't know what uh, PNL was, balance sheet. Uh, where does money come from? How do you invest? What what's an IRR, internal rate of return? I didn't know any of these things. So my lack of education in that part didn't allow me to understand how can I grow my wealth. That's an area where people don't think about. So I used to think about salary. That's it. Money in, I spend. If something is left, I'll save. If something. Uh, it wasn't even on my mind. And, and I would attribute that to a lack of education on my part, uh, maybe at my environment, my school, my university, uh, my friends, maybe uh, like our group. So. If you think about it, uh, in, uh, usually uh, engineer, engineers uh, don't have uh, those tools to be able to assess, like in this job, how much will I earn per year? Will I be able to earn this much and either in equity or in cash? Uh, can I take a hit on my cash and take uh, some stock options uh, in return? And then that has a chance to make me, you know, X number in a few years. Let's break it down a little bit. So let's let's start with some basic definitions. First of all, what is equity? So equity. So a company uh, has a number of shares. Those shares are actually called uh, stocks, uh, or yeah, actually stocks when they become public. But those shares are actually the equity part of uh, a balance sheet. Who defines how many shares a company is worth? It's. It's actually ad hoc, by the way, you can, you know, once you establish the company, you go register it, they ask you how many shares do you want to have? You can put 10 shares, but the problem is that you cannot really dissect, uh, you can't really ma make it smaller parts if it's 10 shares. So you put in 10,000 shares, 50,000, 5 million. Every company can put a different number of shares. Um, that number of shares and how much every entity or person owns of them that turns into ownership. So if I have 100,000 uh, 100, shares, I own 10,000, then I own 10% of that company. Does right. that make sense? Yeah, it makes sense. So let's say you and I, we start a company, we decide that we're gonna um, release 10,000 shares or make that company worth 10,000 shares, 5,000 for you, 5,000 for me, we are equal partners 50, 50%, right? Mm -hmm. um, how do we determine the value, the financial or monetary value of these shares? Like how much is one share worth? How do we determine that? Um, so that's the, again, there's a paid up capital, which you pay in the beginning, and that translates to a share price. So every share uh, has a share price. Let's say that we initially put in $100,000 in that company and issued 100,000 shares, then every sh each share is worth $1. $1. Perfect. So we are equal partners. We both have 50,000 shares because we both allocated or at least we decided that um, that's that's what it's worth. And we put that money in uh, for these shares. Fantastic. So um, developers who come in, we are hiring someone new. We can pay them a salary, obviously, but at the same time, we can provide them with equity. What is a normal distribution for early joiners? Like what are some numbers that you've seen? Like, do we give 5%? 10%, 1%, what is a good number? How do we determine? So it uh, depends on how much will they uh, own, but I mean own as an ownership. Uh, like what are the, that's why when people join a company early on, they really need to know what is the current status quo of the company? 
how many shares have been issued. It's important to ask for these things. Sometimes we shy away, but wh why we're we're doing a it's a transaction in a, in a way. Uh, so you need to ask how many shares, what's the paid up capital until now? Did you raise any rounds? Do we have any debt? It's uh, all of them are valid questions to ask. Don't be shy of them after things get serious, of course. And uh, um, if you're getting very early on, you might uh, get, I'm going to say at least 10% of uh, uh, the company or so, so that's the thing. Is it uh, is it apart from the employee stock option pool or is it actual co-founder shares? Because they're actually different. Some people Help don't. us understand the difference. Yeah, so uh, co-founder shares are uh, shares that, uh, the initial shares in the company that when we established that 100,000, uh, uh, when we put that $100,000 and we got 100,000 shares, those are the co-founder shares. Uh, those are uh, usually uh, common shares, uh, and uh, yeah, at some point, um, other investors will start putting money as well. Those would become the preferred shares holders. Um, every company has a different timing to create an employee stock option pool or uh, a, a class of shares that is only uh, designated for the employees they can issue them and pay their amount or they can postpone it until a different uh, funding round. They can do it at series A, they can do it um, at seed, it depends. Uh, everyone does it in a different way. You can do it from day one, by the way. A lot of startups do it in the beginning because they know that they're gonna issue, uh, they're gonna assign these shares to people at some point. Great, so I have a question here. So why do we need to create a different class? Why can't we like give people's shares from the founders uh, shares like why for the from the 100,000 why can't we give I don't know one 10 20 to our employees so uh, you can by the way technically there anything is possible you can at any point in time say I'm gonna give you my shares by the way you can forego your shares so sometimes some people let's say we start a company and then we find a third person after six months we might say uh, Basim and me, we're like, okay, I'm going to pay 10, 10. Uh, let's transfer. Let's uh, surrender our shares to that uh, party. In a way, we, we sell our shares to that person. So we can do that if it's really early in the beginning. If we believe that enough uh, company was built, I'm going to say it in that way. The company grew, we have revenues, things have passed. It's been de-risked then we might be uh, the right thing would be to okay because we put in all this effort we want to make this class of shares uh, has seniority on uh, another class of shares which is totally fine because we took the risk in the early days we need to be compensated for that as the early uh, co-founders and then there's an another class that has uh, less seniority so uh, if that makes sense what does seniority mean? Great. So I, I, again, maybe when we want to discuss the concept of seniority, we need to jump to the point where we talk about startup exits and how do we, how these shares gain their value. But let's sure. do that because I think it will help people understand where do these shares gain value beyond the initial investments and the money that was put in by investors, right? Like, True. Yeah, true. true. So uh, because it matters, by the way, it matters at the point of actually making money. Because as a founder, or uh, as a founder, as an employee, as anyone who will at some point make money from these shares, you need to understand what happens at the point of an exit. So when a company exits, it's uh, you're actually selling sometimes a part, or most of the time the uh, like the whole company. You're selling the whole shares to someone else. When money comes in, this is what we call a liquidation waterfall. So. Uh, so money comes in from the, let's say, from the top, and then you start distributing it to each class of shares according to rules. Those rules are called the, the waterfall, uh, and those abide by the liquidation preference. So these shares are should be paid first. Sometimes, by the way, uh, there are uh, types of, uh, by the way, because I'm saying something technical, I, I hope I don't say anything wrong. Uh, but they have a liquidation preference where we need to get 2x our money before anyone else gets our money. So uh, if you put in, uh, 
the money starts getting distributed, you pay twice to this class of shares. And then this class might have 1.5x liquidation preference. They take 1.5x their money and then you move on to the next until at the end, the co-founders, the, the founders take their uh, part yeah, and then the ESOP. ESOP? Um, employee stock option. Employee uh, stock options. Okay. So basically pretty much investors. Um, so late stage investors get paid first or the early stage investors get paid first? So late stage investors get uh, paid first, which is what we counterintuitive. Yeah, you? exactly. For many years, I thought that, <laughs> yeah, I went in earlier, but uh, no, that's why when you ask for people for money, that's why you should always, you know, ask for a good valuation. That's why you should mm -hmm. negotiate because the people that are coming in later are going to take their money out uh, first. first. Yeah. Last and first out, I guess, um, even though it doesn't make sense because they're the least people taking the risk because at that point in time, um, you know, their, their, their contributions are, they've already been validated. Maybe you have a product in the market that's already generating revenue, maybe even profit or maybe breaking even, we don't know. So there's value already and, or maybe not. There are many examples of companies getting to that stage and they have pretty much nothing. Yeah. But Basim, if I can just add, uh, but the difference is that in the early days, maybe as an angel investor, I put in 50K and those later uh, series E investors probably put in 50 million. So that 50 million, they need to make at least two X for it. For me, when I actually, when the liquidation uh, like goes through the waterfall, I would have probably made 50 to 100 X as an angel investor. Yeah, yeah, makes sense. So you get paid last, but the, the margin that you get paid is, is way bigger. Like the return on investment is much, much higher. It's multiple orders of magnitude bigger. Um, that's great, amazing. So. We have stock options besides salaries. So let's say I'm I'm an engineer. I'm joining a startup. I will ask the startup how many how many how much investment you get already. How many shares have been, uh, you know, issued already? What are the stock options? Because at the end of the day, they could t say, okay, yeah, we're gonna give you ten thousand shares. But what does that really mean, ten thousand shares, if you don't have the other information, right? If you don't know what the value of each one of them is. So don't fall for this trap with startups. They like to play this trick a lot. Make sure you understand the big picture and, and where the startup is heading, how much, how many investment rounds has it raised so far and, and what are the shares issued. Perfect. So in startups, we have um, probably a combination of a salary and uh, stock options. Let's talk about a scale up. So now we are in maybe series A, B, C. Uh, are there any other compensation options at that stage or it's pretty much the same salary plus uh, stock options? Again, to my knowledge, again, uh, there are people who get creative, but it's uh, benefits. So usually then another thing starts kicking in, which is benefits, uh, maternity, paternity leave, uh, you know, schooling, uh, relocation, signing bonuses, um, because competition is becoming high for really good uh, engineers. Uh, people started getting really creative. Um, I'm not, by the way, I, I live in the Middle East, so I'm not even sure again, in Silicon Valley, I'm sure there are newer types of uh, incentives popping up uh, every day definitely no you're 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 on point so in scale ups pretty much they play the game where uh, now they have a little bit more money in the bank they probably even have a cash flow where they're generating some form of revenue they can actually allocate and distribute uh, you know these funds onto their employees in a, in a much better way they're a little bit more comfortable um, they could probably give you 30 days off, maybe unlimited personal time off. This is a big, uh, you know, uh, benefit that that happens in, in, in the Western countries. Uh, maybe even sometimes they say, um, yeah, remote work now is also a big perk uh, that some of these scale ups can actually afford. Um, pension funds, they can contribute to your pension. Also, this is another way of compensating you. Um, you can also get, uh, as, as, as uh, Tammy mentioned, you know, paternity leave, maternity leave that can be extended beyond what normal regulations offer. So instead of giving you like uh, uh, two months of maternity leave, you get six months, for example. And this is, this is pretty common also. I've, I've heard about it a lot. Great. So now our scale up has graduated uh, successfully and, uh, I'm not going to say they got acquired that they could be acquired. Let's say they got acquired by either a public company or they went and did an IPO. IPO. Yeah, mm -hmm. they, they, they just and let's explain what an IPO is uh, for our audience who doesn't know. 
So initial public offering is when uh, a company, so companies are private usually, and there are public companies. Public companies are the likes of uh, Google, Microsoft, uh, Netflix, Oracle, um, and private companies as you know, our companies, the ones that uh, have still not been listed on an exchange. So, so retail investors, which is all the traditional investors that want to buy stocks, um, can buy into them but our private companies they they can't or if they do they can't buy and sell because uh, it's not on exchange it's really tricky to mm-hmm. there's uh, a lot of paperwork formalities yeah exactly and uh, again when you sell shares it's not easy like yeah today i'm selling my shares it always comes with a lot of uh, it, it's a pain i would say private companies public companies it's easy you can just through a broker or through Robinhood if you're in the us buy stocks sell them uh, very easy to get in and out from a company. So when a company gets uh, mature, um, I'm not even going to go into SPACs, but usually when a company gets uh, a certain level of uh, revenue and size, and uh, there are requirements for every uh, exchange. So New York Stock Exchange will have different rules from a Saudi exchange, from the London exchange or Jordan exchange. So you would uh, you would need to abide by some rules and some uh, metrics. So you're making, uh, you know, 50 million in revenue, you're making this, that. Then you can uh, uh, find uh, a partner that will underwrite this IPO. Um, uh, there are things like direct listing and uh, going through uh, someone, but let's say you end up uh, becoming a public company. That's the main uh, purpose of an IPO. You raise money, of course, when you do that, uh, because you're selling uh, shares to people. Uh, you're, and it's like your final raise, usually. You can also, by the way, become public and then go to be private. Uh, it's also doable backwards. But uh, the important part and compensation difference is that um, when your compensation is in public shares, they're uh, more liquid and uh, you can sell them. But at the same time, they might be impacted, just like what happened with a lot of companies. And some people came, took shares, and then their stocks went uh, in the last six months, went down. And uh, now they're thinking, should I stay in this company or not? Because every year they give me 100,000 shares of this type of stock, which is bad. Uh, in a norm, uh, So you always you want to be aware of which state uh, is your company at. You, the shares, uh, like you mentioned, Basim. How much are they? What part of uh, you know, what's the pool? So, I, like, what's the total number of shares? You're giving me 10,000. What are they worth today? And so, so you can think of what's the diff, you know, how what's the return on investment that you are doing because you are investing in this company. That's the thing that, uh, as engineers, sometimes we lack the investor mentality. You are actually investing your time, and you're con- you're it's just that you're taking your investment in equity. That will tomorrow rise in value and be acquired or become a public company and then you would sell your shares. So, uh, yeah, always look at the entry point. What are you entering at? 100%. Everything you said is is fantastic. I want to add a little bit to that, that in publicly traded companies, for example, they don't necessarily just give you regular stock. So uh, you could go on a market and buy normal stock of, let's say, Microsoft, for example. Uh, that is a, is different from the one that you're going to get because the ones you're going to get from the company as compensation are called restricted stock units. And these are not uh, units that you can sell in the open market. So you cannot get your Microsoft shares and sell. They have a little bit more rules and regulations governing them. So you can only sell them back to the company that actually issued them. And this is the company's way of you know keeping these stocks within its pool and not allowing them to be distributed in a, in a larger market. Um, because then they can just keep on rotating these stocks and giving them to different employees at different periods in time. And these obviously um, uh, stocks, um, they are get traded at the market value, obviously. So when you sell them back to Microsoft, for example, you sell them at the market rate. Um, and sometimes also companies give you some other form of preferential um, payment, which is called um, you know, RSUs at a discount. So you get them at like 10% market discount. So when the when Microsoft issues, let's say stocks, they give you let I don't know like a hundred, uh, and let's say the current uh, stock price for each one stock is two hundred ninety, let's say dollars 
today they give you 10% discount on that so you get it at this at a lower price and immediately you make an immediate 10% profit on those because obviously you got them at a discount right and then you can even sell them when the stock price goes up now the problem is when the stock price goes down because you got already paid at a certain market rate if the cost of, of uh, if the price of that stock goes down you've basically lost money in a way right and this is how these big companies um sort of make you also investors in them they make your success tied to their success and you want to do good work because you want to contribute to the growth of this company and you want to increase the value of your your shares right in in that company thank you for that uh, adding that piece of information and in that spirit, I would always start to think as an investor from day one. Yani just understand. Uh, I don't mean to be too, um, yani don't over-negotiate, but at least understand what you're getting into. That's really important. So just two, two three days of reading would give you all the tools that you need to be able to understand uh, how much equity are you getting, how is it vested, uh, what does vesting mean, by the way, and... Uh, agreeing on uh, those uh, vesting schedules, like do they make sense or is it something that's uh, not really for your benefit? So maybe, can, can I go into vesting? Uh, so usually, yeah, so usually because you're, you're joining a company, still you're, uh, you're, the, how much do you own of the work is not clear. Uh, so usually founders should not, I would also say that to founders, even on themselves, by the way, they should be on a vesting schedule because you don't want to give someone shares and then they would leave the company. They would end up having those shares, but they're not actively. It becomes a passive investment for them, but you don't want anyone that's doing passive investments in your in the early days. You want them to be actively getting those shares and making them grow. Uh, let's say. So, if someone decides to leave at some point, they should not get like the whole 100 if we agreed 100. Uh, there are different vesting schedules. Usually it's, people say it's four years. Uh, I've seen more, I've seen less, but the minimum that I've seen is three. But uh, I guess it, uh, it's leverage, by the way. I and mean, if you have a lot of leverage, maybe you can ask for less even, but you really need to be uh, important for the company to ask for two years. A short-term vesting period, years. yeah. Yeah, so it, it's just a fail-safe uh, mechanism just to uh, protect that you didn't give away too much shares for people that are outside the company today. Fantastic, that's great. And in the Arab world, they, these things might be a little bit easier. If you are based in the in Western countries or maybe in Europe, for example, you pay taxes on these shares. Like even if uh, these shares, you cannot sell them even if you got shares in a private company, for example, you know, stock options, you have to pay taxes for them. So also be mindful when you are negotiating these things, you have to calculate, you know, the, the potential tax implications of this because you pay taxes even before selling them. And in certain countries, like in the US, for example, if you own RSUs or you own shares in any form and then you sell them and you make profit, there's something called a capital gain tax where you have to pay taxes on the profit that you've made out of these in Europe, or at least in the Netherlands, I know from personal experience, <laughs> there is no capital gain tax. So there is a, a flat rate tax on wealth in general. So if you have wealth beyond a certain point, you pay taxes on that. But if you make profit out of selling and trading shares, uh, if this is not your main income, of course, uh, you don't pay capital gains on it, uh, capital gain tax. Um, yeah, I, and I think with this, we have cl cleared a big chunk or a big part of you know, what comes from equities and, and, and stock options and all of that uh, fun stuff. Uh, it's complicated. Like, it's not easy. Um, and this is just the tip of the iceberg. Yeah. Yani. Uh, I think I encourage everyone to go uh, read about it, uh, use some of those uh, yani, uh, things that we mentioned and really like just dig deeper into them. One or two days, that knowledge will help you in loads when you understand uh, which uh, which offer to accept or how to negotiate. And by the way, negotiation is not a bad thing. We sometimes see that negotiation is uh, you're being rude. That's maybe a Middle Eastern mentality where, uh, but at the end, if, if, if it's fair for both of us, that's the start of a long-term journey where we will both be happy and uh, no one will, after two or three years, start 
rethinking this uh, startup or journey. So it's better to talk about these, uh, flush them out, talk about them, be fair for both parties, uh, always in any negotiation, which means that both parties should know their uh, their rights uh, and how much are they worth. Sometimes you, know, you might end up uh, giving up too much uh, equity or not receiving enough equity in the beginning. So trying to understand that uh, early on is really key uh, for you know, everyone, but especially engineers, because we spend a lot of time focusing on the nitty gritty details, like how can I make this distributed system uh, consistent? Awesome. You, and you spend weeks uh, trying to do that amazing open source project but we don't spend that two, three hours reading about uh, resting schedules or uh, how do we invest our money. Yeah, 100%. And I think also it's a, it's a sort of a generational thing. So your generation, my generation, we don't really think about investments. But now like Gen Z, like you see a, a 16, 17-year-old talking about, I'm an investor or having in their profile, like I'm an investor or they start trading crypto or whatever. Fine, we're not going to talk about, you know, these things, but at least they give you, they give them the knowledge uh, that they can potentially use later on to make more sound investments uh, and better investments. But it's, I think it's also a generational thing where the youngsters are, are getting uh, up to speed a little bit faster than us um, and, and how we got into the business uh, ourselves. All right, Tambi, this is uh, fantastic so far. We've uh, talked a lot about different forms of, uh, you know, getting paid. We talked a little bit about investing and uh, the different financial tools available for us. Um, I want to talk a little bit more about um, talent and how we can make paying talent and engineers in general, but also there are other, you know, employees in a, in a company. How can we make paying their salaries sustainable? So it's easy to lure in new talent by paying above market, let's say. But then it becomes a problem. So how do companies create, uh, let's say, re rewards that, are, that can retain talent for years to come? What are the options available to them? So other than equity and all the benefits that we mentioned, well, it starts getting harder, by the way. So, and it, it's it's usually a race to the bottom when companies start competing over increasing salaries, and uh, yeah, usually it becomes really tricky. And uh, new rules need to be introduced where uh, you sign people on. Um, so this doesn't happen in the US a lot, but in the Middle East region, for example, signing people contracts where they cannot uh, work in other startups if they leave and competitors. So these things, uh, non-competes, uh, start getting into uh, uh, the picture. Um, I think it's it's really hard to m maintain uh, talent if the only thing that you're doing is uh, competing on salary. Because at the end, you need to make them feel like they're either uh, learning or earning. If you cannot increase that earning capability very fast, which it's not always easy, and you should not do it if you're trying to scale your company because every time you increase uh, salary scale, you need to abide by it and it goes across the board and you don't want people working the same work having two different salaries. That's one of the big no-nos in my opinion. You don't want to uh, uh, do that. So you would need to start focusing on their learning and how much are they comfortable and growing within your company. So I believe if people balance those uh, two things, they can maintain people for five to 10 years, which is amazing uh, if you can maintain an engineer. Uh, is it realistically feasible? Is it realistic? Because like, I mean, everyone likes to talk about, we have, let's say, different perks. We have different benefits, so on and so forth. But like, is this just smoke smoking mirrors, or are are have you seen successful examples of companies, at least in their early stage, being able to retain talent for years? Retain talent for I I have seen that by the way, and uh, sometimes it's it's a mix of equity ownership. How much do they feel that they've built this company, and they don't want to leave? You know, there are some people who early, uh, joined Amazon earlier, and uh, I think employee number six uh, once we met. He's still there uh, and 25 years or 30 years. And it's amazing. Uh, like, how can you survive that long and still feel fulfillment? Because they grow. They allow them to go, uh, grow in different areas, grow 
both in uh, um, I'm, I'm going to say a, a scale, but give them ownership of new things. So everyone wants to reinvent themselves. If your company is a company that's large enough and it's uh, getting into different things, for example, Amazon got into healthcare. So that person that I'm talking about went into healthcare and actually owned a new area of the business. So he reinvented himself within the same uh, uh, corporate structure. Uh, I don't think his, uh, I don't know, the not rate, uh, he didn't raise as a uh, role, I would say, but he his ownership uh, of a new area become uh, became yeah. more prevalent. Yeah, what you're talking about, I think it's, is referred to as lateral moves. So, for example, you just go and explore another area of the business. You might not necessarily be a higher rank or a higher level. You don't necessarily need to, you know, grow upwards, but you can also grow sideways where you can just go and explore another role that is completely different. That doesn't maybe even come with additional compensation, but the growth in other aspects of your career your skills your your management skills whatever areas you want to grow in that could also be of added value and also the, i think that's sort of a way of of rewarding talent right uh, where you where you get to explore these things and get opportunities to do them where in other companies like enterprises no you're you're fit in a box you're not really allowed to leave that box nobody is willing to even explore other options and opportunities available so I also encourage you and implore you to think about these things as, uh, you know, benefits for you. Uh, Tambi, this has been fantastic. Uh, I thank you very much for sharing a lot of these great insights with us. Um, do you have any thoughts you want to leave our audience with? Just uh, what, what I mentioned before about uh, really learning about these things, uh, understanding uh, your value, understand what value do you bring to the company, understanding how the company operates and how one day this whole uh, thing will, uh, I'm not going to say end, but move on to the next part, whether it's an IPO or an exit. So because you, you, you both you, you preserve your right and you have empathy more with the founders themselves and the company. So you understand more the impacts of decisions that you make. Uh, I would just focus on that. And that's it. Tambi, thank you very much for your time and for your insights. This has been a very uh, insightful conversation. Thank you very much, everyone, for watching, and I will catch you next time.